so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Welcome to the Digital Public Square, a podcast from the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission about ethics, theology, and philosophy in today's society. I'm your host, Jason Thacker, and I serve as Chair of Research and Technology Ethics and also help lead the ERLC Research Institute. Each week, I'm joined by some of society's most influential thinkers, writers, and leaders to talk about the important ideas shaping our society today, as well as some of the top issues of life in the digital public square. Our goal with this podcast is to equip you to navigate these issues with biblical wisdom and insight. As always, alongside this podcast, we also have the Weekly Tech newsletter that you can sign up to receive each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing ethical issues of technology, as well as life in the digital public square. You can subscribe now at jasonthacker.com slash weeklytech. As we continue our mini-series on our recent release volume, The Digital Public Square with BNH Academic, I'm joined by Dr. Keith Plummer to talk about his contribution entitled The World is Watching, Reclaiming Truth and Maintaining Our Witness in a Digital Age. Today, Dr. Plummer and I talk about the influence of Francis Schaeffer and the way that Schaeffer helps us to frame up a lot of the questions and a lot of the issues that we face in a digital society. Keith serves as a professor of theology as well as the dean of the School of Divinity at Karen University. He previously served as a pastor in the Evangelical Free Church of America and is a contributing author to Before You Lose Your Faith, Deconstructing Doubt in the Church, as well as the Digital Public Square. He earned his PhD from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. And now let's join our conversation. Well, Keith, welcome to the Digital Public Square podcast. I'm really excited to have you in particular on the podcast. One, because I've long looked up to you. It's been fun over the last few years to develop a relationship with you. Two, you were part of the volume here on the Digital Public Square. And then three, you're also a longtime listener of the podcast. So it's kind of fun to be able to come full circle and to be able to host you today here on the podcast. Well, thank you for the invitation. And I've been looking forward to it, too. Well, one of the things that I always want to do when we get started is to get to know you a little bit. So some listeners may know from various contributions that you've had in other books or even in this volume, The Digital Public Square. But as we get started, can you tell listeners a little bit about your background and kind of what sparked your interest specifically in technology and discipleship? Prior to my current role teaching at Cairn University, I was in pastoral ministry for about 18 years. And during the course of my being involved in the pastorate, I was on the front end of the internet and started in with uh, Christianity Today chat rooms and all of that AOL kind of stuff. And uh, when I was doing that, I became interested in just some of the theological implications of this new technology. One of the books that I read at that time, and we're talking probably the early 2000s, somewhere in that vicinity, was Doug Grotheis's book, The Soul in Cyberspace. And that was probably the first theological assessment of this new online environment 
that I had come across, and I was intrigued by some of the things that he was saying about it and trying to think in terms of biblical and theological categories to make sense of this new technology. And then later on in the pastorate, I came across Nicholas Carr's article in The Atlantic as Google Making a Stupid, eventually turned into The Shallows. And he described something there that I could easily resonate with, relate to. And that is a line that he had where he was saying that he used to be like a scuba diver going into the depths of the ocean when it came to reading. He could go into a book deep and long. And he said, now, after some time on the internet, he was like a guy skimming along the surface on a jet ski. And when I read that description, it really just jarred me because I said, someone else is putting words to something that I have experienced as well. And that was one of the things that made me want to explore technology in greater depth. And another factor that was instrumental in my interest was some of the writing of Sherry Turkle, her alone together, why we expect more from technology and less from each other. And uh, when I read that, I thought, People like Nicholas Carr, people like Sherry Turkle, they are putting their fingers on some issues that are important, but I just thought they lacked the theological framework in terms of which to make sense of even why the things that were disturbing them were disturbing them. And I thought, if anyone needs to be concerned about these things that they're drawing attention to, it should be Christians. And so those were some of the factors that led to my current interest in the interface of Christian theology and discipleship and technology. Yeah, I think we probably have a very similar story in that sense. So it was actually a book for me um, by Yuval Noah Harari. Years ago, he wrote a book called Homo Deus, and I always joke that he has the best subtitle of any technology book, A Brief History of Tomorrow. Uh, which he kind of future casts and says, this is kind of where we're heading as a society. And I was reading it. I was very disturbed by much of it. But the thing that really kind of just stuck with me was this doesn't seem to really align with my faith. As a Christian, as I'm thinking through the truths of the universe, of who God is, how he made us in his image, how he calls us to live in this world, there wasn't a lot of hope. There was a, It was kind of a dystopian book in many ways. In other ways, it was something that I just thought, this doesn't seem to make sense of a lot of the philosophy and theology that I know of or that I know exist and kind of how Christians would think through this. And that's kind of what sparked me in some sense for the journey of kind of studying these things formally in terms of ethics and philosophy, kind of digging in depth, um, specifically in technology. I know as we were coming together to write this Digital Public Square book, you were actually one of the first voices that I thought of to be part of this project because, one, we already had a good relationship. Two, you're such a, a sharp thinker and very intuitive kind of connecting things together. One of the things that, as you were writing this chapter, that really just kind of shocked me was how you connected the late Francis Schaeffer's work to a lot of the kind of issues of technology and discipleship and particularly the public witness today because this is one figure that I am very familiar with. And I think a lot of listeners are actually pretty familiar with the name Francis Schaeffer, but they may not know a lot about him or specifically have delved really deep into many of his works. And so could you tell us a little bit kind of the influence of Francis Schaeffer on your life and then specifically how that starts to connect to a lot of the questions that we're asking today about life in the digital age? Sure. I became a believer in college. I was 19 years old. 
And when I did, there were a number of uh, noticeable changes in my life. There was a voracious appetite for the scriptures. There was a sense of inner rest that I had not known. I was a very restless person. And a sense of a cleansed conscience, joy, a realization of being connected to God and having the sin that was very apparent to me forgiven. And I don't know what happened, but there was a point at which I began to question whether these subjective changes in me were really rooted in any objective reality or truth. I knew what it was like as a non-Christian to have doubt that was designed to protect me from the claims of the Bible. This wasn't that. I wanted Christianity to be true, but for some reason, I went into a tailspin of intellectual doubt about virtually every element of the Christian faith, the existence of God and therefore the possibility of miracles, the authority of Scripture, the inspiration of Scripture, Jesus being divine, the resurrection, and so forth. And I really went through a period that I describe as hellish, because that's the only word that I can think of that captures it. And I felt that I was at a fork in the road where I was going to have to choose between the life of my mind, because I had always been academically, intellectually inclined, or the life of faith, which I conceived of as being vibrant, emotive, and so forth, but not necessarily intellectually substantive. And I was going through this period. I remember in my dorm room being stretched out on my floor and saying, God, I don't even know if I'm talking to somebody, but if you're there, please help me. And I it just, I was in this divided mind. And one summer, I went through what at the time was New York City's largest Christian bookstore, no longer in existence, but I was going through the aisles and I came across this book. It was called Five Evangelical Leaders, and it had the pictures of these five uh, men on the cover. And I recognized many of them, but there was one that I didn't. And humanly speaking, the only reason I picked up the book was because of the odd appearance of this man. You know, he had this long flowing hair and this goatee and this stern look on his face, and I had never seen him before. And I picked up the book and started thumbing through it to find out who he was. I got to the section that was about him. And I remember vividly, as I was reading about his ministry and his emphases and how it is that he was seeking to show how the Christian worldview actually answered the big existential philosophical issues of life in a way like that no other uh, did, tears came to my eyes because someone was taking seriously the things that were causing me so much angst. And that was my introduction to Schaefer. I soon purchased uh, books by him rather than about him, and eventually ended up getting his complete works. The first few books that I had picked up, He is There and He is Not Silent and The God Who Is There, they had a profound impact on me because he was helping me to see how it is that the Christian faith actually made sense of such things as our inescapable moral evaluations of ourselves and others, made sense of the possibility of having knowledge about anything. And so I describe Schaefer as a stream in my spiritual desert, and I am just immensely grateful for his 
ministry. When this occurred, he had already gone to be with the Lord. And when I learned about the ministry of Labrie that he and his wife, Edith, uh, ran in Switzerland, I was just so, so disappointed that I was living after the time because I would have loved to have met him and to have been a part of the community that they they had there. But I was very grateful for the, the writings that he left that were so helpful to me. I know you've mentioned his complete works, and there are also his collected works that have been kind of recently republished and reformatted um, by Crossway. What are some of those? You mentioned a couple of the primary works already, but what are some of the other kind of primary works? And then specifically, what was it about his two contents to reality uh, that you kind of frame this chapter on? What was it about that chapter that really kind of stuck out to you? Well, some of the other primary works, some of which I mentioned in the chapter, is the mark of the Christian, which has to do with love being the mark of the believer. And the the work that you mentioned, Two Contents, Two Realities, which is actually a small work that is a transcription of a talk that he gave, an address that he gave to the International Council on World Evangelism at the Lausanne Conference in 1974. And in that, he talks about what is necessary, what he believed was necessary for the Christian church to make significant progress. He might have used the word of fulfill, by which I don't, I don't think he meant complete. But he said that if we are going to reach the world, there are two contents and two realities that must be given attention to. The two contents had to do with sound doctrine and what he called honest answers to honest questions. And the two realities were what he referred to as true spirituality and the beauty of human relationships. And so he said that there is revealed truth. So when you think about the contents, this has to do with the answers that are given in Revelation and that must be believed. But the realities were the living out of these truths, particularly in the context of community. And I don't know exactly what it was that made me think about the application of this for discussion about the church's witness in the digital age, but I think maybe one of the things was the connection of the idea of content. Because when we think about the internet, we think about producing content. When we think about Christian witness using the internet and other digital means, we think primarily in terms of content. And then that got me started thinking about what about the realities? How well or poorly is this aspect of what Schaefer was saying, I believe on the basis of scripture that is important, essential to reaching the world? What are the limitations of our digital communications for the reality aspect? And how, in some cases, might our tools be shaping us in ways that actually detract from the cultivation and display of these realities? Well, that was something that as I was uh, early on when you had turned in your chapter, I was looking through it and I was I was really struck by that because one, I like that kind of play on words of the two contents and the idea of content, especially online today. 
and then kind of those realities. I mean, one of the things that you know about my work is that I focus a lot about kind of the relationship of theology and ethics. And I think you even kind of see that modeled uh, not only in other of Schaefer's work, but specifically here in terms of content and reality and that living out of those truths um, in society. So as we drill down a little bit, because that's one of the things that kind of picture is something that you frame really much of your chapter on is specifically that idea of two content, two realities. The two contents that you kind of highlight from Schaefer here are the ideas of sound doctrine and honest answers to honest questions. Are these two kind of contents that uniquely you see addressing many of the challenges that we face today, especially with technology? Can you unpack that a little bit for us? What is it kind of about technology that is kind of altering maybe even the way we see the world around us? It's shaping us, kind of the language that you've used. As we think about these kind of ideas of how we as Christians are to live out and light of this uh, sound doctrine and the uh, biblical truths, as well as giving honest answers to these honest questions that people are asking all around us? Well, I think with respect to the contents, I think that there is a, there's a great advantage that our technologies have or that afford us in terms of being able to disseminate biblical truth and to some degree respond to questions that people are asking about the truthfulness of Christianity. So I'm grateful to God for that. I do think, though, it's necessary for us to not just think of our tools and our communicative um, vehicles as just containers that don't have any impact on what we're using them to convey. And so here, the thought of people like Neil Postman have, has been really influential on me with respect to how it is that the media that we use do have impact upon us as communicators, as well as, to varying degrees, the content, what it is that we are seeking to communicate. And so I try to bring out how it is that I think Christians need to be mindful of that and seeking to work against some of the deleterious ways that what we're using to convey the content might shape or maybe alter what it is that we're trying to communicate. An area of interest for me is apologetics. And for Schaefer, though he's known primarily as an apologist, he saw himself primarily as an evangelist. And so I'm, I'm grateful for the opportunities that we do have to communicate with non-believers through the internet. I think that the content aspect of the internet is valuable, and I think Christians should make use of it, but make use of it wisely. In my chapter, I am more concerned about the lack of ability or the diminished ability, I will say, in terms of the reality that should be in concert with the content. Yeah, and that's one of the things that, you know, we've talked a lot about here on the podcast is the way that technology shapes and forms us. And I think for a lot of people, the first time they hear that, especially Christians, um, given kind of our understanding of technology, I think it shocks a lot of people. Uh, partially because we come to technology, as you well know, from a more kind of a tool-based approach. Isn't it something I use? How is it really shaping or forming me? I can use it for good. I can use it for evil type of thing. But one of the things you bring out here and that you even see in Schaefer and as you brought in Neil Postman and so many others is that technology is also altering it, shaping our perception of the world. 
And that's something we talk a lot about in the volume itself, but then kind of broadly speaking, that's one of the kind of big conversation kind of points, debates almost within even the Christian community is how do we see a philosophy of technology? What really is technology? Is it just merely a tool that we use or is it something more kind of predetermined kind of fashioning and forming us? And I think there are kind of ditches on both sides, honestly of this debate. And that's where, at least in my work, I try to take a more, what I believe is a more distinctly Christian approach of saying, yes, it is a tool in the sense that we use it. We have agency and accountability. But on the other side of that, we also realize that technology is shaping and forming us. And that's something that you see, especially as you were kind of unpacking a little bit of the realities. So you talked about the kind of two contents, and then you bring in Schaefer's idea of the two realities, uh, which you kind of mentioned specifically are embodiment as well as the living out of this content, which for me in kind of an ethicist world, that's where I was like, oh man, this seems like it's ethics in the sense of how do we live in light of these truths that God has revealed the idea of theology? What do we do in light of those? So how do you see technology kind of shaping our response? Because I think especially in a digital age, we see so much communication. We see so much, quote, information transfer or content come across our screens, come across our fields, come across even maybe our phones while we're listening to a podcast like this. We're getting breaking news and text messages and things. But how is that then shaping and forming us in terms of the way we see the world around us and the way that we interact with others? Sure. I think one of the ways that it shapes us is that it acclimates us to expect immediacy and brevity oftentimes. And it also acclimates us, even in terms of what you were describing, we live in what some have described as a continual state of distractedness and interruption. And one of the things as a pastor that I started thinking about, and in terms of my own life, was as I am becoming shaped in this way, what does that mean for the various ways that I am called to attend? What does that mean for my cultivation and practice of long-suffering, patience, endurance? If I am training myself to be constantly entertained and stimulated, what is that going to do for my ability to love someone well by listening to him or her when they're not really all that interesting to me? What does that mean for my ability to spend any length of time in prayer when my senses are not being aroused? If I am being shaped with the expectation that things should come in blurts and they should be digestible and they should be quick, what is that going to do to my ability to read scripture and to follow a line of thought or to read an extended portion of scripture so that I'm seeing the relationship between the various components of this text as opposed to seeing it in piecemeal. There were just so many things that I saw as having impact upon how it is that we are called to live as Christians that I thought Christians need to be giving attention to this. With respect to the the realities the realities that Schaefer saw, he, he referred to them as true spirituality, which anyone familiar with him would know is the title of a book that he wrote called True Spirituality. He said there was, 
See, it's, it's important to understand that for Schaefer, he went through a period when he started to question Christianity. And what caused him to question it was he had seen some very ugly disruptions of fellowship amongst those who held to sound doctrine. And he was asking, where is the reality? In his own Christian life, he recognized that he didn't have the vibrancy that he once did. And he said, as he looked at conservative Orthodox churches, there seemed to be a lack of reality with respect to practical holiness and love. And this led him in 1951 to a period of real soul-searching where he was questioned whether or not he should return to his agnosticism. And so he came out of this period confident that Christianity did answer life's biggest questions. And he also came out with a deeper appreciation for the finished work of Christ and the necessity of the believer, because of his or her union with Christ, walking in a moment-by-moment dependence upon Christ such that the fruit of his life by the Spirit would be born in one's life. And the other reality that he said must be present if the world is going to take note of the gospel is that of what he called the beauty of human relationships, by which he meant love, and particularly love between believers. And he did this on the basis of Jesus praying for unity amongst his followers so that the world would know that the Father had sent him, and also on the basis of Jesus saying that by this all men will know that you are my disciples, your love for one another. Yeah, and I'm really glad you brought up the point about love because obviously it's pretty easy to see that love is kind of the central theme of Christian ethics. I think most of us, most specifically Christian ethicists and philosophers would argue that. Um, You see that in Jesus' own words, to love the Lord our God with our heart, mind, soul, and strength, to love our neighbor as ourself, as you've kind of referenced in John. And by this, they'll know if you love me, if you love my commandments, we see this, this idea of love. Well, in your section on human relationships, you point out, and I guess I find this kind of interesting as uh, a budding academic like myself, I always find a favorite footnote, especially in things that I really love. And you point out uh, that at times Schaefer would use, he would kind of substitute the word beauty for love. It also, this idea of kind of centralizing on love actually reminds me of a quote from the late Carl F. H. Henry, which is kind of a contemporary of Schaefer here, where uh, Henry would say that love is the sum of the Christian ethic. But as you well know, especially today in our society, the term love uh, is often misinterpreted. So what is it about Schaefer's kind of substitution of beauty for love that is striking and something that we need to be kind of aware of in his writings? For Schaefer, he, he explained when he talked about the reality of the beauty of relationships, he said that he meant love. But the reason that he did make that substitution was he said that the word love had become so demoted that it was practically meaningless. And when you think about something that is beautiful, and here I'm kind of extrapolating because I don't recall him doing this, but I think what he had in mind was the idea that when you see something that is beautiful, it captivates your attention, it evokes awe and praise. And so when he talked about the beauty of human relationships, by which he meant 
being aware of every human person being a bearer of the image of God, there is a necessity to treat him or her with dignity, respect, with value, and that's beautiful. But he said, if we are called to treat all of our neighbors with love, how much more are we called to love our brothers and sisters? And so he really thought that there was a necessity for the Christian community to exercise a demonstrable love, and that this was necessary for the evangelistic effort, that this wasn't something tangential, this wasn't something that was optional. It couldn't be divorced from either evangelism or apologetics. And so one of the purposes that he said, or the purpose of Labrie, the ministry that he and Edith had in Switzerland, he said Labrie existed to demonstrate the existence of God. But by the demonstration of the existence of God, he had these two things in mind, a demonstration of the existence of God by way of reasoning and thinking through things, showing that there really is overwhelming evidence for the existence of God, but also a demonstration of the existence of God as Christians lived in love amongst one another, so that when non-believers, many of whom flocked to Labrie in hope of getting some answers to life's questions, that they would see this. And one of the things that I do in the chapter is I talk about how it is that the occasions for the unbelieving world to behold Christians living amongst one another and loving one another are fewer and fewer. And I, I think we've got to think about how it is that we both practice this love amongst one another, but we do so in a way that it is apparent to the world. I'm not talking about putting on a show. I'm talking about just living authentically in the power of the Spirit in accessible ways to unbelieving eyes so that we can offer both the contents and the realities. And one of the, one of the things that I bring out in the chapter is, and this kind of touches your question about how we're being shaped by our technology if we're not thinking critically about, about it. Our digital technologies can have a tendency to prioritize distance over our proximity so that we are working on and thinking in terms of our reach and our attention can easily be swept up to where we are not. And there can be a diminishment of the importance of our locale. And in order for this reality of the beauty of human relationships to be fully expressed and witnessed, I think we've got to give a greater prioritization to our location and think in terms of place and proximity. There's so much that we could unpack there, especially as we're questioning things, whether it's from the metaverse to in virtual reality to questions of AI and embodiment. I mean, there's so much that really needs to be unpacked there. And uh, one of the things that we hope to do with this volume is actually to spark the conversation. So I hope maybe some listeners say, hey, man, that sounds like a really interesting point or something I want to dig into. I highly recommend checking out your chapter as well as the whole book because uh, there's some really great contributions there. 
Um, but one of the things that you do mention in, in the chapter as well um, was uh, Neil Postman. You mentioned one of his lectures uh, that you kind of talk about. So obviously, a lot of people know about his works like Technopoly and Amusing Ourselves to Death. But it was actually years ago that you encouraged me to check out this lecture that you end up kind of including in the chapter as well about five things we need to know about technological change. This was a, a lecture that he gave. Many know that Postman wasn't a, a person of faith. Um, he was uh, very fluent. He was very conversational about a lot of these topics, but wasn't a person of faith. But yet, when you read this, it is just striking about the way it connects with so many of the not only just issues, but even the questions that we as Christians have about contemporary society and about technologies and the way they're shaping us. So what is it that is so powerful about this really short little piece? I mean, it's not actually that long, but this lecture he gave, what is so powerful about it and about this idea that how technology is inevitably shaping us and our perception of the world around us? Yeah, I've wanted to find out more details about this conference that was consisted of religious leaders, and someone asked him to come, and he saw himself, though not a person of faith himself, he thought that this was important for religious leaders to understand about the, the nature of technological change. And he, in this address, he talked about how it was naive to think that technologies are neutral, some of what you've already been talking about, and that any technology has embedded within it what he called an ideology, that our technologies orient us in particular ways in the world. They prioritize certain of our senses over others. They give a vision of how the world should be. And they can create within us expectations towards those ends. One of the things that he said in this um, talk was that when there is a new technology, when there's technological change, he said there are always winners and losers. That we need to be asking ourselves, who is it who is truly benefiting from this? Who isn't? And um, for Christians, though he doesn't frame it in this way, Again, that traces back to matters of loving our neighbor, matters of justice, and so forth. And he also, in this talk, talked about how it is that when you, he, he said that technology is exponential rather than additive. That when you bring a new technology into a society, it's not that you have the same society plus one additional thing, but in the same way that in a biological ecosystem, you introduce a new species over time, you change the nature of that ecosystem. And he said that technology works like that. And another interesting thing, and I hope people will, you can find this on the internet, I hope people will look it up. One of the things that he says is that over time, technology that has been used with regularity becomes what he called mythic, by which he meant we can't imagine ever having been any other way. It is though it's a part of creation, by which he meant we treat this technology as though it was around from the very beginning. So there is, I go back to that essay so many times because there's just so much in it that, as you said, has relevance for, for us as we're thinking through these, these theological and ethical issues. 
Well, for listeners' sake, we'll make sure to include a link to that. I found a PDF a while ago uh, that hopefully we can be able to link to so people can check out this particular essay. Um, But I want to end on a question specifically talking about kind of your role there at Karen. One of the things you've done uh, that I think is really fascinating is that you have a class entitled Technology and Christian Discipleship. And I wanted to ask you not only as a faculty member, but also as an administrator, why is it that you all at Karen see such an emphasis of like, not only do we need to talk about these things in our classes, but we need to kind of dedicate a specific class to technology and Christian discipleship. And I would assume that as you've taught that class over a few semesters, that uh, there are questions that your students are asking or discussions that you get into that you may not have planned for. Um, And so as you kind of think about the idea of technology, discipleship, and kind of the church's witness, what are some of the things that come up in a class like that that you're seeking to address as you're seeking to hopefully shape these students in the ways that they see the world around them? We started offering the class because, well, because of my interest in it, I think that's a part of it. But both on an undergraduate level and a graduate level, it's not a required course, it's an elective. But the more we started thinking about this is something that Christians can't ignore, that this does have impact upon following Jesus. It is shaping us in ways of thinking and attitudes, expectations, frames of mind that are either conducive to or not to what it means to follow Jesus well. Because our young people and our adults, I mean, it's, it's not, it's everybody. We are so immersed in particularly digital technologies that we have to think about how do we help one another to use these with wisdom. And, you know, when I would walk into a class, and I still do, when I walk into a classroom before we're supposed to get started, it was troubling me that I would see students who, all of whom are on their phones, not interacting with each other. And again, having their attention directed elsewhere and we're walking down a path and seeing how we have kind of a, almost a reflex reaction to avert one another's gaze and look down at our phone or so forth. We wanted to help Christian students think about how our immersion in technological life is not It can't be divorced from our desire to follow Christ and to grow in Him. So some of the things that we do is we look at technology in terms of the biblical story. Where do we place it? How do we think about technology in terms of creation, fall, redemption? We look at some issues of media ecology, as we were just discussing. We we talk about, are our devices simply tools? We have the discussion about instrumentalism and determinism that you referred to earlier, because many of them, I think, like many older Christians, have tended to think about their technological devices and usage as, well, as long as I'm not using it for an immoral purpose, then it's all good. And so, obviously, you don't use your laptop or your phone to access pornography and so forth. That's clearly sinful. But we want them to realize there are other considerations, wisdom considerations, that we have to give thought to. So those are some of the things that we look at. We, we talk about communication and thinking about 
how the various media that we use can impact what it is that we want to communicate and what, when is in-person clearly the, the best, when are such things as texts and emails and so forth, when do they actually take away from what we might actually want to communicate? And then we also talk about redemptive uses of technology. What are some ways that technology is and can be used to work against effects of the fall? Not to eradicate them totally, but nevertheless redemptive in that sense. And then we also talk about things like virtual reality and church, decisions that are made about what technologies we use and how. Uh, so it's a, a broad range of topics, but what brings it all together is we're trying to get our students to think about how Christian theology and biblical revelation, what do they have to say to the decisions that we make? And one of the things that I start out the class saying is that if we understand, which I believe is the case, that technology is a good gift, it is part of what the cultural mandate is consists of, we can avoid the extremes of either demonizing technology or what I call devouring it, you know, just the uncritical consumption. But I think for most Christians, and I won't even just say that this is college age, I think the danger is more that of devouring. Again, to quote Postman, he said that the question of what a new technology will undo is just as important as the question of what it will allow us to do, if not more important, because so few ask that question. So we're trying to help students ask these questions of themselves and their technological usage. Well, and that's in many ways the same kind of idea behind a volume like this, the Digital Public Square, uh, that we've been able to do this mini-series on over the last few weeks, interviewing each of the contributors. Um, because one of the things we hope to do with this and kind of a vision behind it was to equip the church to be thinking proactively about a lot of these issues, not only the way technology is forming and shaping us, but then how do we navigate conflicting values in the public square today, specifically in kind of an increasingly digitally mediated public square today? Um, but Dr. Palmer, it's been a real joy, one, to get to know you over the last few years, and then two, to have you today here on the podcast. I really appreciate your work um, as kind of thinking about our conversation today. I'm just really honored to be able to have you here and to hopefully this conversation will spark more conversations among our listeners and the context that they're in to kind of focus about the way that technology is forming and shaping us. So thank you so much for joining us today. Well, you're welcome. And the appreciation and gratitude is mutual. It has been great to get to know you, and I am very grateful for the work that you're doing in bringing these things before the, the Christian church. So thank you. Well, from all of us here at the Digital Public Square, I want to say thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, would you consider leaving us a review wherever you listen to podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, your favorite podcasting app? These reviews really help us to know how we're doing and also to share the word about the podcast with others. As a reminder, you connect with Dr. Plummer and learn more about his contribution to the Digital Public Square project in the show notes. Also make sure to sign up to receive the weekly tech email briefing that comes out each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think proactively about the pressing issues of public theology today, as well as stay up to date on the latest technology news. You can subscribe at jasonbacker.com slash weeklytech. 
The Digital Public Square is a production of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission and is produced and hosted by Jason Thacker. Production assistance is provided by Caden Christian and technical production provided by Owens Productions. It's edited and mixed by Mark Owens. Thank you and I hope you have a great week. Thank you.